Thanks again for joining us online. So how are you doing with this new uh, emergency order number eight? Can you believe it? We're about 17 weeks into it. We're already on our eighth edition of COVID-19 restrictions. And if you guys don't live in around Madison, well, let me tell you, we're, we're masking up and it's tough. I was talking to Brian over at Metro Market and he said, uh, he's the manager there. He lets us, he's so kind, lets us park the van there, you guys, generously filling it every Tuesday so we can give the food to our partner schools and the families in those schools. He said, man, wearing a mask for, for 10 hours a day, it's tough. I mean, it's just getting weird, you guys. I mean, I miss you guys. I miss gathering, and here I am. Usually it's me and Isaiah, and it's great to have at least one person in the room. There is nobody else in here. It's me and a bunch of lights and cameras, and, but I know you're there. But it's taken its toll, right? I mean, this is hard. The fear, the isolation, the uncertainty. Like, what is school going to even look like? And it's taken its toll. I mean, sales of alcohol is up, antidepressants, anxiety medicine, that's through the roof. And so what a great time for us to hear from Ecclesiastes, from King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, about the good life and how it's actually possible for us to live the good life in the midst of a pandemic, in our ongoing fight against injustice, in whatever it is that's challenging and hard and difficult in your life right now, that we could live the good life. He's going to spend most of the chapter telling us how not to live the good life. Man, the secret's there. We're going to get to there. But man, if there's anybody who was uh, apparently living the good life, it was this guy called Somerset Maugham. Uh, he was this prolific novelist, playwright, maybe one of the most prolific coming out of England in the 20th century. At 91, he was fabulously wealthy, successful to the nth degree, royalties coming in from all over the world, despite the fact that he hadn't written a word in years. His fame was on the uptick, receiving an average of 300 letters a week from his fans. And from, from everybody's vantage point, he was successful. But that's not how he felt about his life. And that's not what he shared with his nephew, Robin, who then wrote about his visit with his Uncle Willie, as he called him, before he died. It was published in the London Times. Here's what Robin wrote. I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remembered the villa itself and the wonderful garden, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean. He had 11 servants, including his cook, Annette, who is the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera. He dined on silver plates, waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henry, his footman, but it no longer meant anything to him. The following afternoon, I found my uncle reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible which had very large print. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across the quotation, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that that text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk. But the thought is quite interesting all the same. That evening in the drawing room after dinner, he flung himself down on the sofa. Oh, Robin, I'm so tired. 
He gave a gulp and buried his head in his hands. I've been a failure the whole way through my life, he said. I've made mistake after mistake. I've made a hash of everything. You gotta love the Brits. I tried to comfort him. You're the most famous writer alive. Surely that means something. And here's what Somerset said. I wish I'd never written a single word, he answered. It's brought me nothing but misery. Everyone who's got to know me well has ended up hating me. My whole life has been a failure. That's how Solomon felt, a complete failure. He too had been exposed to the truth of God's word in his youth and had turned from it. And so as an old man reflecting back on his life and his quests, his answer to the question, what is a prophet a man if he gains the world but loses his soul, was clear. And it didn't have the words bunk. It didn't have the words quite interesting in his answer. He said, it profits nothing. God's truth was ratified in his experience. He knew that gaining the world is no gain at all because he'd actually gained it all. And it didn't, didn't deliver on its promise. So he's saying, look, I searched you guys. I searched for the good life. And actually the good life isn't about a search. It's not about finding something. It's actually about receiving something. So what he's going to do in this chapter is he's going to just tell us, here's all the things I chased. Here are all the paths I went down. And I did all these at the same time. And I'm telling you, they, they, they promised great things. They promised me satisfaction. They promised me happiness. But they didn't. They didn't deliver. And so in a nutshell, what he's going to say is, Living the good life is not something you achieve. It's a gift from God that you humbly receive. It's not a chase. It's not a quest. It's a humble reception, the gift of God, a relationship with him. So grab your Bibles. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So here's how it breaks down. In verses 1 through 3, he's going to talk about his limitless pursuit of pleasure. In verses 4 through 23, he's going to talk about his relentless pursuit of fame through his accomplishments, through his wisdom, through his work. And then finally, in the last three, four verses, 24 through 26, he's going to share the secret of living the good life, even in the midst of a pandemic. Are you ready? So here we go, verses 1 through 3 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. What's the good life? Is it through this? Is this the path? But that also proved to be meaningless. That's that word for vapor, smoke. It's, it's seemingly there, but there's nothing there. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Look down at verse 10, because this is like his, wow, this is a stamp on his pursuit. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Limitless pursuit, no budget. Nothing that he could imagine. He chased it all. So when the scriptures here talk about embracing folly, when it talks about madness, 
It's not just talking about losing your mind and doing things that are stupid. It is actually talking about moral perversion. He's, he's, he's actually using something that's good. This word pleasure, which will come again in verse 26, is something that's good. It's, it's something that could be described as, as happiness, as, as, as joy and gladness. But it becomes something that's bad because the good thing becomes the ultimate thing. And when a good thing like pleasure becomes the ultimate thing, then it turns into sensuality and it ruins us. And it doesn't promise and deliver on its promise. So the limitless pursuit of pleasure. He's not a kid with a pocket full of allowance going to the county fair. He is the king and he can spend anything on anything his mind can imagine. And he's the king, so he has power and authority to make sure that what he can afford can actually take place. And he chases it all and he begins with wine and that's an easy place to go for some pleasure, alcohol. But he goes to places and ends up in places that you and I could never get to. So I cheered myself with wine, verse 3. Perhaps loosening his inhibition, embracing folly, sensuality, if you will. Yet his mind is engaged. And he's wondering, like an experiment, is pleasure seeking? Seeking my pleasure? As I define pleasure, is that the route to the good life? Hugh Hefner would say, that's it, Solomon. Solomon would say to Hugh Hefner, dude, there's nothing new under the sun. I, I, I was doing it. Listen, I had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Don't tell me about the playboy philosophy. It doesn't deliver. There's nothing new under the sun. So alcohol is an interesting first step for his pursuit of pleasure. It's as common as finishing the day with a glass of wine, or is it half the bottle? With a beer, or is it the whole six-pack? It's that fan or those fans that just keep stacking the empty cups at the game. He says, I, I try to cheer myself to find happiness through alcohol. Anyone can begin there. It's a huge business, $250 plus billion a year. And during COVID-19, sales have spiked anywhere from 20 to 50% at points during this pandemic. But those who venture down this path have very little idea of the hurt and heartache and pain and misery that comes as this good thing becomes a, a, an ultimate thing that chains us and binds us so that we're addicted and it ruins our lives and so many others. So his conclusion is it's meaningless. It doesn't bring satisfaction. So then in verse 4 through 23, he pursues fame through these accomplishments, through first his projects, verses 4 through 6. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I, I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. You know, when I, when I hear that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Versailles, the palace of Louis XIV, the sun king, and the grandeur of the hall of mirrors and the palatial gardens and the fountains and the ponds and the pools and the trees. And it's just it's unbelievable. This is what he did. And, and it was noted, the Queen of Sheba says this um, in 1 Kings 10, 4 through 5. 
that when I saw it all, the palaces, the houses, the food, his officials, his wisdom, the, the, the golden goblets, when I saw it all, she said it took my breath away. I just was, I couldn't believe it. And so for Solomon, this is like a Babel moment. What do I mean? Babel is the story in Genesis chapter 11 when God's people were supposed to be spreading out where they settled into the plains of Shinar and they built this tower, this project, this monument, this, this icon. And it says they built it to the heavens to make a name for themselves. So this is his Babel moment. All these projects, the temple, his palaces, Ah, oh, the forest palace, the, 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 the temple for his Egyptian wife, right? All these different things, the gardens and all of it to make a name for himself. It reminds me about the song Mumford and Sons sang called Babel. It goes like this. Like the city that nurtured my greed and my pride. I stretch my arms into the sky. I cry, Babel, Babel, look at me now. Well, he moves from his projects to his possessions, verses 7 through 9. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. And if you're troubled by that, you should be. And just because it's recorded here doesn't mean that the Bible condones that. We'll talk about it just a bit. In fact, this is just as much a list of his confessions and sins and wrongdoing as it is his accomplishments. But anyways, it's telling that's what he did. Because, man, he built a lot of stuff and needed all this slave labor. He said, um, I, I, in verse 7, I own more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. That's talking about the sensuality of his pleasure seeking. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. So he needed slaves to construct and care for his palaces, his gardens, construct his monuments. He, he needed great herds to feed those at his table. The 700 wives, the 300 concubines, their children, the servants. Listen to the daily rations that were needed to feed those at his table. 180 bushels of flour, 360 bushels of cornmeal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep beside deer, gazelles, roebuck, and fat and fowl. Talk about, this is the ultimate farm to table. Unbelievable. And yet Deuteronomy 17 was clear. The king was commanded to not acquire great amounts of horses. Well, we know from 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 26, that he had 12,000 horses. That he was not to take many wives because they would lead his heart astray. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. He was not to accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. You guys, he had hundreds and hundreds of tons of gold that came in every year. His goblets were gold. Silver wasn't worth anything in his kingdom, the scriptures say. He wasn't supposed to do that because it would make him arrogant. Rather, he was supposed to write the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy with his own hands, and he was to read it so that he would follow it. And in the law, it was clear that man, Adam and Eve, men and women, all created in the image of God. There's no room for the things that he was doing. 
And I believe the whole engine that fuels this pursuit of fame and pleasure is self. Notice he said, I, I, I said to my heart, go after pleasure, enjoy yourself. The repeated references to self. You know, verse 9, it's his Muhammad Ali declaration. I'm the greatest. There's no one else like me in all the world from east to west. And coming up to dead ends as he built these projects and pursued all these possessions and acquisitions, curating them all, his, his kingdom's treasure. He says that didn't deliver, so I'm going to try wisdom. Verses 12 through 16. And the Bible tells us about his wisdom. Here it goes about his wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 4, before we get to our own text, verse 12. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, 30, 32 through 34, we read this. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand of the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt, all the people of the West. Verse 32, he spoke 3,000 proverbs. These are wise sayings. And his songs numbered 1,005. He was a poet. He spoke about plant life. He was a botanist. From the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He was a zoologist. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all the nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. So verse 12, we read this. Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom. Maybe wisdom, maybe intellect, my mind thinking philosophically about the issues of life. Maybe that's going to unlock the key. Maybe that's going to be the key that unlocks this life called the good life. He said, so I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also to compare it, right? And also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? Look, I've got all this wisdom. Nobody's got wisdom like me. So anybody coming after me can't run this experiment like I've run it. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So wisdom's better. It's the difference of walking through our house with eyes that can see and being blind. It's better by far, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Because whether I can see or whether I can't see, I'm going to walk off the end of the cliff and I'm going to die. The same fate awaits us all. And by the way, not only am I both, are we both going to die, but we're both not going to be remembered for all my wisdom, for all my knowledge, for all that I've written, the thousands of wise sayings, all these things, not remembered, not remembered. And so he, he, he says, man, verse 17, so I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun. 
because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. His, his projects, his positions, his, his intellect, right? I've, all his learnings, he's got to leave it to someone who'll come after him. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Who knows how they'll steward all that I pass on to them. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil in which I poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. It's meaningless. So he's driven to despair. Verse 20. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. Notice that phrase, under the sun. Doing work, doing life without God in view. Functional atheism, right? My heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun when I was doing life without God, trying to live the good life, pursuing all these things apart from God. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and the anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their labor, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. It's stressful, filled with anxiety, his work. He's driven to despair, realizing that it, what is it going to accomplish? It's only going to go to somebody else and who knows if they're going to squander it all. And all the stress that keeps him up at night leads him looking for a sleep clinic. He's got a good case of insomnia because he cannot deal with the inevitable. What is the meaning of life? Where do I find happiness? And how do I change the inevitable of death and the great leveler of rich and poor, of the fool and of the wise man? And so here's his confession. Pleasures don't last. You need another bottle. The projects won't endure. You won't be remembered. Your, your possessions, they're going to lose their allure like a month after Christmas when we were kids looking for a new toy. The law of diminish and return sets in. There's going to be another philosophical puzzle to solve. The hunter is now the hunted. Like the Sultan of Spain in the 10th century who said this, 50 years have passed, Riches, honors, pleasures, I've enjoyed all. In this long time of seeming happiness, I've numbered the days in which I've been happy. Fourteen. <laughs> and that wasn't one of the 14 days when he realized in 50 years, all he had was five, ten, 14 days. 14 days. That's where Psalm was at. I've numbered my days. And all these days where I've been doing life apart from God under the sun, whether I'm chasing pleasure, whether I'm building projects, where I'm building my treasure, acquiring and, and curating my treasure, whether I'm chasing wisdom or, or, or work, man, it just didn't deliver. There wasn't happiness. wasn't happiness. But, but here's the key. Here's the key in verse 24 through 26. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. He's just told us you can't find satisfaction because he's been talking about life under the sun. Now he's talking about how you can find satisfaction even in your toil that he just said is grievous and painful and leads to stress and anxiety. 
And here's what he says. You can find satisfaction in your toil because what? I see this is from the hand of God. This too I see is from the hand of God. In other words, a gift from God, this satisfaction that comes to us in the ordinariness of life that without God is hard and meaningless and doesn't deliver. But with God, he says it satisfies. It satisfies. Even your work, that job that right now you think, man, there's no way this job could satisfy. Not till I get a pay raise. Not until I get more responsibility. Not till I get the respect I get. Not before I get the position. Not before my, my boss is fired and I finally get a decent, but not before I finally get some competent employees that allow me to succeed. No, right now, satisfaction, because it's not something that we achieve. It's a gift that we receive. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Not only that, verse 25, for without him, God, who can eat or find enjoyment? All we have is from God. Our life and what sustains our life, the food and drink, it's all from God, including the enjoyment of the things, little or much that we have, all from God. So he says, to the person who pleases him, verse 26, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth. Listen to this. Only to hand it over to the one who pleases God. And this too is meaningless, he says, a chasing after the wind. So his logic is clear. He makes a positive statement. And then he makes a negative statement. The first thing is this, positively, living the good life is all about receiving God's good gift. Humbly receiving God's good gift. The negative statement is, there is no lasting satisfaction enjoyment apart from God. Which leads us with some unsettling questions. Are you, am I, living the good life? And how do we know? Because everybody was telling Solomon he was living the good life. The Queen of Sheba was. All the kings who were sending their envoys were saying it. His own feelings were betraying him. Are you living the good life? How do you know? And what are you chasing to find the good life? And is it delivering on its promise? How is it, how's it working? Is there satisfaction in your work? Whatever it is God's called you to do right now. Do you have wisdom and knowledge to navigate the complexity, sometimes the absurdities of life in this twisted, crooked, fallen world? Chapter 1, verse 15. There's more, though. Are you happy? And is happiness something that's common? Or is it rare in your life? Look at your hands. What kind of hands do you have? Solomon says, man... If you've got hands that are always just clutching, grabbing, you're not in a position to receive. If you're always grasping for more, you're not in a position to receive. Our hands open, acknowledging humility that I can't get to where I want to get. I don't have. I need you, God, in my life. I want to receive by faith your gift. Look at your hands. Solomon says, I know you want the good life. I'm just telling you. All roads don't lead to the good life. You were made for the good life, he's saying. And the reason he could say we were made for the good life is because we were made for God. And the good life is unlocked through this gift that we receive from God, which is God himself. The very God 
who sent his son. The exact representation of his glory. Who left all the riches of heaven to be born in poverty in a feeding trough. To live in obscurity. To suffer. The one who had all wisdom, who knows all things, who would be limited in, in his own human condition. Fully God, to be sure, but fully man. Oh, he did it for us. What a God we serve. The one who came to serve and to free us. The one who not only taught it, but modeled it. I didn't come to be served, Jesus says. I, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And so we receive the gift by faith. And that gift tr transforms every area of our life. Bringing satisfaction into the ordinariness of life. Wisdom and knowledge to the complexities of life. Let Jesus deal with your regrets. Let him bring contentment to your lives. Robin went on to add that Somerset ended the night with these words. And now it's too late to change, Robin. It's too late. Willie looked up and his grip tightened on my hands. He was staring towards the floor. His face was contorted with fear and he was trembling violently. Willie's face was ashen as he stared in horror ahead of him. Suddenly he began to shriek, go away. Go away. Somerset wasn't ready to die because he hadn't lived the good life. As long as you and I have breath, it's never too late to turn back to receive the gift. Let's pray. So Father, I, I would just pray that you would open our eyes and hearts again to the truth that it's not about a quest, it's not about a hunt, it's not about a chase. It's not about what we can achieve in this life that makes life good and satisfying and filled with wisdom and knowledge and happiness. It's all about what we can receive from you. And we pray that we would be humbled as we just reflect on our own foolish pursuits, as we confess, Lord, that this has become the ultimate thing, whether it's been sex or money or position or our mind or our work. Lord, we just confess that. We thank you for your word that's teaching us and calling us out, your spirit that's needling in these areas that need to conform to your ways and to your blessing. So have mercy on us. For those who are trapped down these lanes, set us free, Lord. Deliver us from the lie that it's too late. Receive us into your arms as we trust in your Son, our Savior, the wisdom of God the one who always lived to please you, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.